All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? I am uh, enjoying the winter here in L.A. The winter uh, takes the temperature down to the sometimes low 50s, maybe even high 40s. And we're all bundled up here. Uh, it is it is chilly, and I and I welcome it because I miss the Eastern Seaboard fall weather. I miss it. I just I'm just out here in the sun. Today's show is interesting. There is a theme. There may not seem to be one initially when I lay it out, but there there is sort of a connecting tissue. Uh, today we have um, Sam Pollard. Uh, he's a documentary uh, film director, also a film editor, worked with Spike Lee for years, but he's got a documentary film called Two Trains Running. It's opening at the uh, Metrograph in New York City tomorrow, December 2nd, and I hope that the interest in the film will get it a wider release so everyone listening uh, to this can eventually see it. But it, the way I heard about it was kind of uh, interesting. My neighbor, um, Adam Hockey, is a I believe he works in a coloring a colorist. Uh, I think he does something in post production with film, and he hit me to this documentary. So I'm working on this thing. I think you'd be interested in this guy Sam Pollard. It's about uh, it's about it's it's about the civil rights movement, but it's also about blues music. And so I was like, really? And I did a little research, and then I tracked down Sam Pollard and had him out here to talk about this documentary. I got a. Uh, a sort of um, a cut of it, not a final cut, but I got to watch the film, and it was a, uh, it was a, it was an interesting fusion of two very distinctly different, but in, but similar. Not, I mean, how can I explain it? The movie Two Trains Running. I'll explain that in a minute, but I do want to give a little, a little bit of lip service before we get into it to uh, to my next set of guests. Is a doubleheader, The Handsome Family are musicians. Now, you probably know their work if uh, if you listened, if you watched um, True Detective. Uh, it was, a, I believe it was the, the, the theme song, Far From Any Road. It was a Handsome Family song. Now, they the Handsome Family are, are Brett and Rennie Sparks. They're a married couple. And they live in Albuquerque, where I grew up and occasionally go to hang out, see my dad, touch base with the roots of my life now their music is very haunting it's very sort of gothic folk music very um kind of fueled by the uh, the ancient folk uh themes and stylings and it's uh it's it's beautiful and i had had several of their records uh that i i listened to and i was sort of fascinated with because the the packaging of the records is is beautiful because um, Rennie does all the artwork, all the painting, all the putting together of the packaging of the covers in there. It's just, it's a whole thing. The Handsome Family is a, uh, the music and the the artwork is a whole world and it's a, it's a beautiful world. So I, when I was in Albuquerque, I got in touch with them. I invited them over to where I was staying, uh, Brett and Rennie, and, uh, and we, we talked. So that's the second part of today's WTF. Um, but this getting back to the blues music and getting back to Sam Pollard, I'm a, like, I, I am, I don't know when I first heard blues music, you know, the old style, 
but it, it is definitely part of my heart and mind and it's deep down in there. And there were certain moments in my life with blues music that, you know, even as an older person where you find new stuff, I remember the first time I listened to those Robert Johnson recordings and I was like, I don't get it. You can barely hear it. And then it sort of grows with you. If you, if you have the template in your heart for, um, for old traditional blues music, uh, it, it kind of evolves as you get older and it, and it, and, and it sort of becomes more enriched as you get older and you find more in it and you, you know, you, you kind of go to a place with it, but not, not long ago in my life, I, I read an, uh, a biography of Skip James. I'm going someplace with this people. And I started getting into Skip James music, which is really one of the most sort of unique and, um, haunting again i'm going to use that word uh you, you know blues that you can find you know you know he did the original i'm so glad which is a uh, which i think cream covered and uh and it just his voice was something beyond almost human understanding and the tone that he got uh, with his songs was something completely completely unique in blues now this movie uh two trains running tracks it's very interesting it's 1964 and it's the um, it tracks the sort of the, the the migration of of civil rights workers and college students, you know, down to Mississippi for for the civil rights movement for the Freedom Summer it was called, and that's one trajectory of the film. And the other trajectory are these two sets of dudes who had no real concept of what was necessarily going on in Mississippi at the time, but coincidentally went down there from two different places, one from the Bay Area, that include John Fahey, the guitar player, and the other one from uh, the Boston area, which included Dick Waterman. And they were just coincidentally going down to find these old blues musicians because at the time... There were these just these record freaks that had these old 78s of this old music that seemed to disappear. So in 1964, no one really knew, uh, you know, in the collective uh, mind about Skip James or or uh, or Sun House. But these these musicians and and blues freaks did. And they there was this constant sort of like curiosity as to whether they were still alive and whether they could find some of these guys and Fahey and his crew you know, coincidentally with the, uh, went down looking for, for, um, for Skip James and, and Waterman and his crew, uh, you know, went looking for Sun House from different parts of the country in the same basic area, you know, and in the same basic area of the civil rights movement of the freedom summer and, and the voter, the voting, uh, rights movement. You move through these, you know, this search for these two blues musicians and the, the, the sort of fight for civil rights and voting rights. And it all culminates in, Obviously, voting rights legislation and, and awareness of, of what was going on in the segregated South. But then uh, it also moves towards, on the other trajectory, the Newport Folk Festival, where they, they brought all these musicians that had not been heard from in, in decades, you know, down, up from the South and wherever they were, Skip James included. And he performed for the first time. They found him in a hospital. And they gave him a guitar. It's sort of a beautiful story. And and to see and hear Skip James at Newport that year was just mind-blowing. And obviously, all this stuff that happened in uh, from the activism in the civil rights uh, movement uh, sort of all happened at the same time. But I'd never seen these two things put together. And that's what this film does. And it was... It, I, I loved it. And and the deal is, is that um, they these films, this film in particular... Um, Look, you know, if you want to see it, it's sort of hard to see it. And uh, I like the movie and I'd love to f help find it a wider audience. So if you're a film distributor 
out there, you should definitely pick this. Uh, you should definitely pick this film up because uh, it's it's worth seeing, and, and it's a great sort of bringing together of two very important narratives in the cultural history. So right now, um, I'd like to uh, to let you listen to me and Sam Pollard, the director of uh, Two Trains Running. So let's do that now. You've been an editor for how long? I've been editing since uh, 1975, so it's almost 40, 41 years. All the time in New York? I spent some time here in L.A. cutting a couple of feature films and some time in Boston and D.C., but primarily in New York City. Really? Now, like, when you started, like, where did where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? I grew up in East Harlem. Yeah? In New York City. Yeah? In the uh, 50s and the early 60s. Really? Yep. So, you've seen a lot of changes in your lifetime. You'll be surprised, Mark, how much I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it amazes me all the things I've seen in my lifetime. <laughs> well, how, I mean, how old are you? You're a little older than me? I'm what are you? 66. Oh, yeah. So you're alive and awake. Yeah, I'm 66. Uh, during uh, you know the 50s and 60s. <laughs> yep, you know, Dr. King, Malcolm X... Black Panthers. Well, how like know. well how were so what so if you were sixty so you're born so you're like a teenager. I was a teenager when when Malcolm and all that was happening. I was yep. I was a, down the street. That's right, up in Harlem. And right, and uh, you know what? Are you, how like fifteen, fourteen, fourteen, fifteen years old. And what what like what do you what events do you remember? What do you, the tone of like you know what was happening? You know what I remember? I remember nineteen sixty four when there were some riots in Harlem. Yeah, being on the bus going uptown, ducking when people were saying they're throwing missiles at the bus. And, oh really? You know, oh yeah, that I remember. You know, I remember. You know, when, when Malcolm was killed, you know, and and the tension I felt in the city and when Dr. King was assassinated. All those things, you know, we, we, I remember growing up in Harlem. I mean, also, I grew up in a community where there, I grew up loving Latin music and jazz and soul and all these things. So it's a lot of things going on. Well, in Harlem, yeah, always, right? Because oh, yeah. there was a, a definitely a, a, a big um, you know, mixture of uh, ethnic forces, musically yeah. and otherwise. Oh, yeah, you know, there was uh, growing up listening to... Tito Puente and Eddie Palmieri and Charlie Parker and yeah, yeah. Gillespie and Marvin Gaye and the Temptations, of a, 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 a lot of music. Yeah, and it, when do you? Where'd you? Uh, where'd you? How? Like, was it a big family you come from? Not in not my immediate family. I yeah. had two siblings, but my extended family, which goes all the way to Mississippi. My father's from Mississippi, and he was one of uh, nine children. Uh-huh. And then his siblings had lots of children, so I have like you know hundreds of cousins, <laughs> hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of cousins. So when when you were director of a documentary, how does the relationship with with uh, you know the the guy who the story you, you know like how does it how does it evolve? Because the story to me was it, it was very it's beautiful balance, like this sort of like naive you know compulsive nerdy journey of these guitar nerds and blues nerds. To go find these guys, you know, alongside of a very brutal of the you know of the freedom uh, the summer project in '64, was it a very interesting balance that that lended a, you know, like uh, it could have been very you know brutal, but it was it, it had a balance to it. Well, you know, one of the things that I have to tip my hat off to Ben Hadeen about is yeah. that it was it was his idea. Yeah, you know, he really came to me about three and a half years ago with this idea. He wanted to do a documentary that looked at 
John Fahey and Dick Waterman and Nick Pearls searching for Sunhouse and Skip James, but at the same time, he wanted to tell the story of the young white kids who went down for Freedom Summer. Right. Now, initially, I thought, you know, as a film editor and a filmmaker, I said, Ben, that's a lot to chew off to try to make those two stories work. Right, you know, right, really yeah. Really intense, really difficult. But he was pretty tenacious about wanting to do it, so I finally got on board and I started to think, I think we can make it happen. One of the things that can help make this film come to life yeah. and to help that balance would be to find contemporary musicians to play the music of Sun and Skip. So right. Lucinda Williams, Gary Clark Jr. Yeah. You know, and then find the people from both the aspect of understanding who Dick and Nick and Jeff and John Fahey was and then finding people who were also down for the Freedom Summer right. so we can have these parallel stories. And the really important thing to remember that, that Ben made us aware of was that the day that Son and Skip were found was the same day that Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman were killed. Disappeared. Yeah, disappeared. So yeah. sort of this confluence of things coming together. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating about it is that, you know, that the ignorance of, of white people at that time, you, you know, was was deep and, and, and cultural and, and had no idea. And these, these kids, and they were all kids, like, if I really think about what it takes to motivate, yeah. you know, white college kids to do anything, it's obsession and feeling like they got to be part of something. You know what I mean? Exactly. So so the naivete of the music nerds, you know, ver- versus the righteousness and, and sort of, uh, um, you know, you know the, the, the democratic thinking of, of the people that went down to March. Because like, I know these people. Like, they, they, it's not that they're, they're ignorant. They're just they're just narrow. They're just uh, kind of um, isolated. That's right. So these guys had no idea, no idea what they were driving no, into. They're no. just going, we're going to go find these guitar players. Yeah, they just were on a, a, a musical mission. <laughs> yeah, you know, based on nothing. <laughs> didn't know anything. The, the, the one kid, they they got something from Buck White. Who who knows what he was even talking about? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they go down but there, it, but it was like a seed that made them say, "Wow, yeah, we can go on this journey." You know, and that kind of naivete is what, you know, helped them find these people, you know. I mean, yeah. and they weren't the only ones who were able to find people. Mississippi John Hurt was found like this. Yeah, I mean, a couple years to before, really, right? Yeah, to bring back these these iconic musicians who had done such phenomenal music. Right, and I had no idea about that. And I, and I like Sunhouse, and I like uh, Skip James. I've read biographies of Skip right. James. But just culturally what was happening, it was very interesting to me, the detail about uh, how most of that, that, that folk resurgence was was Irish folk music and and, right. and and British folk music and stuff that comes from that part of the world and these guys had not even been recognized That's as right. as being part of American folk music. No, had not at all. It's crazy. Yeah. It, like it, it, and, and uh, now I'm just getting all excited. And and the fact that that there was actually a time where you know the guys who had these 78s were just sort of like no one has these. This these is magic. Yeah. You know like what, what they is were jewels. It? Right. They were jewels. You don't even think about that. No. These acts, these guys that these guys went to compulsively find, you know, defined, you know, rock and roll. They defined jazz. They defined everything. Oh yeah. And it was just these nerds, and it just happened simultaneously. But I thought the balance of the respect for for that art form, and then the actual legislation that you know that happened within the two years of, of those kids being killed, like what, like when when you come to this, and I, you know, I know you work with Spike a lot, and you, and you obviously have a history, and and sort of like. Like integrating these these sort of separate you know actions of of you know kind of you know privileged white people being mm-hmm. pivotal you know in in moving things forward yeah how do you you know how do you you balance that 
I mean, because you, you, there were guys that, like that you talked to in the movie that were like, "We got to get the we got to get the rich kid, the white kids." Yeah, I know. They're going to be father for for the things happening. Right. I know. I know. You know, it's a it's an interesting kind of challenge as a filmmaker and as an African American filmmaker to tell these stories and to. You know, you're basically putting these young white kids at the forefront of the stories. But the thing to remember is that they didn't do it out of kind of any sort of feeling like they were trying to make a name for themselves. They right. were trying to, you know, say, well, we can do this better than black people. Right. They did it because there was a lot of emotional and psychological sincerity. Mm-hmm. You know, it was sincere. Yeah. You know, when you have Dick and Nick Pearls and Phil Spiro and you have Jeff, John Fahey and Henry Vestine. You know, and these guys searching for Skip and, and and Son is sincere. When you have these other young white kids going down to be on the front lines, to be on the front lines, to know that their heads could be beaten in, you know, their arms could be broken, they could be killed, but they were still going down there because they believed they had to fight for these rights. It's it's a sincerity that's important to make sure this comes across, you know. Yeah, and it's fascinating that, like, like just in, in you talking about what you lived through is that, this is before the late 60s where everything right. blows open. It's the early 60s. Right. So, you know, the, these are, are, you know, kind of real, These all these, the characters and the people that you talk about are, are, are real heroes of democracy in a way. Exactly. And it was, it was not fashionable. It was, it was, it was not like, you know, we're going to grow our hair out. It was like, you know, this is a problem in our country. Yeah. And we want to do something about it. Yeah. We yeah. want to do something about it, which is an important thing to remember that yeah. that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of naivete, you know, is what's galvanized people to support Bernie. Right, The same absolutely. kind of attitude. Yep. And that's so important for a democracy like America, and particularly in these very turbulent political times. Yeah, where do you, like, because I, you know, where do you see, you know, the one thing a candidacy like Trump sort of reveals is just how much hostility and racial, you know, racist-driven anger there still is in this country, and they're willing to stand up and be identified if given the right, you know... Platform. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, uh, you know, as a one as a person who's 66 years old, yeah. you've seen a lot. Yeah. You would like to think that some of this stuff that you hear coming out of the Trump camp, yeah. you know, doesn't exist, but I knew it exists. I know it exists, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not naive. Right. It just sort of saddens me that here we are 50 years later still right. going through this same kind of stuff. You know, it's just like my god. Yeah. I thought it was going to change in the 60s and the 70s, but it hasn't, you know. Yeah. Because there's, you know, but that's what makes that's what makes human beings human beings. There's certain things, there's certain things that people emotionally feel, you know, angry about. Yeah. And they've and they found a way to vent that anger now. They found the person who can help them voice that. No, anger. I get that. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's broad-based anger. It's not it's not no. not all specific. It's no. just sort broad of like based. Yeah, I'm fucked, so fuck everything. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, oh my God! That's right. So when you, so when you direct a, a, a documentary, because you've done producing, you've done directing, and you've done a lot of editing. What? It, so the primary, the primary element is organizing, right? There's two primary primary elements when you're doing a documentary, yeah. particularly like this one. Yeah. First is basically understanding what the concept is, which we knew 
as we developed it. Uh-huh. And then the, the, the deep dive is what I call importance in terms of historical documentaries, the research. Right. Really researching the subject that you're going to do. Right. In this case, what was going on in 64 Mississippi? Who should we talk to? You know, who were these mu- musicians? Now, me and Ben and David happen to know, I'm, we were familiar with Ten House and Skip. Yeah. So we had that handle, but we needed to understand what was going on in the civil rights movement. Right. Who should we talk to? You know, Bob Moses. You right. Know, yeah. Should yeah. we talk to? Who should we talk to? Dave Dennis. Yeah. Who are those people we should talk to to give us the inside story about what was happening down there? So, you know, understand your concept, doing your research, and then deciding who you need to interview to help tell the story, and then what kind of material archivally in terms of photos, footage, newspaper headlines do you need to gather to help make that story visually come to life? And the other thing that's important, particularly for this documentary, a lot of times now people are thinking about do we create reenactments? How do we make some stuff that we don't have, mm-hmm. like the guy searching for Son and Skip, how do we make it come to life? Now, one of the things that came up, and I think David was the one who thought about this, is that instead of doing reenactments, yeah. let's create animation. Yeah, yep. Let's do animation. Sure. Which, you know, we found a company in Europe that had done phenomenal animation. They did, Mark, they did a great oh, job. Oh, no, it's beautiful, and yeah. it's, it's almost and got it like- it comes a, to life. Yeah. It makes the film come to life, because we didn't have anything else. Yeah. You know, yeah. so how do you do it? So animation was the key. Well, yeah, your only other option is just a, a montage of stills. That's right. Yeah, you know, over and over again. And, Different pictures and of and John been, Fahey. That's been done. <laughs> <laughs> or else you can do that thing where the, the guy comes out of the still and floats for a that's minute, right. and then you put that- That's been done yeah, to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I I thought the animation was, it worked. It almost it's had really a, a, an underground comic feel, like that's almost- Right. An R. Crumb vibe to it, exactly. And and the I didn't realize that you know these stories they're so tight, they're so close together. The the coinc- it transcends coincidence. I mean, when Ben was laying this story out to you, and you were hesitant when you saw the dates, were you like that's some sort of kismet? That's like some sort of weird magical coincidence. It amazed me, <laughs> and I kept saying, Do we 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 need to make sure and double check, yeah, that it's correct, yeah, yeah, it's crazy <laughs> because it's crazy that it would happen. It's crazy. And then, like, you know, when they found those kids, when they found Shaney Goodman and Schwarmer, that, you know, that that was within, what, uh, you know, days of the legislation passing? That's right. It, after they found the bodies, it was a few weeks after they, they passed the... Uh, the Civil Rights Civil Rights Act. Act. Yeah. The next year, there was voting right now. Voting right. Rights Act. But it took that. And and then like that was the other thing that, that I think people forget and that I, that I always forget because I live in my own fucking world is that... You know, there were people fighting hard all the time against those those acts and those bills. They they were like, "This is not the way the South is." Good. That they, they had it in their head. Oh yeah, I like I see because I don't like. Obviously, I'm not African American, and you know, and in in order for me to experience the 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 proper amount of empathy, I have to be I have to watch a movie like this I know. because it's not my history. But but you know what's interesting though is that there's always these forces that are at play trying to untie the things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, specific, look at North Carolina. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, Horrible. Look at, look at it. You know, it's, the it's governor there is, is, is trying to say, you can't be a transgender person and go into a men's bathroom if you think you're a man. There's always been these forces that are constantly saying, we want the status quo. We want to stay the same. We want things to st- and not change. Hmm. That's why people are so grabbed onto Trump's we want to make America great again. It's already great. You know, yeah, it's already for, great. Yeah, and he forgets what's great about it. It's, it's actually progress, right. <laughs> you know, moving forward. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's always these forces, as you know, that are trying to 
undermined progress. Right. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Right, but it's like, it's, I guess it's just based on, it's ignorance, but it seems deeper than, than ignorance because, like I've been talking about this on stage a bit, that it seems that Americans fundamentally are, are, are relatively decent people because once change happens, even if they were furious about that happening within a couple of weeks, maybe a year, they're like, ah, I guess that's the way it is now. Yeah. And they, you know, they settle they into adjust. it. Right. They can adjust. Yeah, because it didn't really have that much to do with their life anyways. That's right. Ugh. You know, but you got to want to, you got to, you got to be able to say, okay, let's, let's adjust. Yeah. But you know, and I know is one of the things that's difficult for human beings is to deal with change. Yeah. You know, it is on all levels. Changes, even me sometimes. Sure. Certain kinds of change in my personal life. I said, yeah. whoa. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't I, want to deal with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. Take, don't take that away from me. <laughs> That's right. That makes me happy, that That's thing. That's right. It was interesting, too, at the end that to see that, you know, that Robert Moses and, and David Dennis continue to fight the fight. That's important. It is important. That's an important thing to understand that they didn't stop in 64. They understood that the mission, the journey is a long one. Is a road that you got to keep constantly stay on. Yeah, and, and you got to and and and, they, and these guys have my tremendous respect mm-hmm. for being able to continue their fight. Yeah, I mean, here are these here are these two men are in their early set late sixties, early seventies, and they're still fighting the good fight. Yep, you know, and that's important. And it was funny that the guys who you know the guys who were still alive or, or that historically who did who the the musicians and the music nerds they just they went on to create a music label. One of them managed Sun House and Dick Steve James. Dick yeah. Dick became. I mean, listen, as I don't know if you remember in the film where 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 Sun House mentions Dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How important Dick is very important to keeping Sun's legacy alive. Still. You know, today. Yeah. If you go to his house, he has a table full of pictures and a lot of them of Sun House that he took himself. You know. Yeah. He is really a man who's kept that man's alive. When I did this blues documentary years ago with Scorsese as executive producer, that's when I first went down to Mississippi and met Dick. And Which one was that? It was called the Blues Series. It was yeah. a seven-part series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched some of that. Yeah, yeah. the first one I did was, was Scorsese directed, and we went down to Mississippi to sort of follow the journey of the Mississippi music and where it came from. Then right. ended up going to Mali. Mali? Mali, West Africa. Yeah, West Africa. Yeah. Right, so you, you tracked the, the rhythms we tracked all the, the way back, back down. Back to Mali, yeah, you know. And so that's when I first met Dick, you know. Yeah. I spent a whole day at Dick, talk with Dick, talking about Son and how he met Son. So, you know, this was really great for me to go back almost 12, 13 years later and, and spend, see. spend more time with Dick. Sure. It's always good when people are still around. I think Dick has something in common with you. He loves cats, man. Does he? I got a few. He has a lot of He loves cats. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, the, the, the blues is like... You know, I talked to another guy about that. That the, the thing about watching Sun House, and even in the footage that uh, that you had in the movie, which I think I had those on videotape. Those were Yazoo. Uh, didn't they release some videos of yeah. Puka White and, and uh, yeah. Lightning and those guys? Lightning Hopkins. Yeah, I think I had them. But like that, you know, these were not. The dialogue was not about race. Really, no, was it? It's about love. Yeah, and love and, and lost, man. Right, and but also, you know, God and God. You know that, yeah. like that thing about you know where where uh, I don't know if it was Dick who said that. No, it was the other guy. He said that that son had a hard time 
you know, really you know, yeah. bringing together the God part and the blues part. So there's a struggle when yeah. he, that little key to Sun House, when you see him just singing a cappella or, or with the guitar, that that he's doing something that he's not sure God would approve That's of. That's right, because he's struggling inside with the forces of good and evil, right? Constantly, really good and evil, right? And he's not he's not figuring out. And you know, what's interesting. Here's a man in, in, at that time in his fifties and his sixties still struggling. Yeah, you know, tap right back into that's it. That's right. That's why he had to tip to use that you know drink, booze, that yeah. booze all the time that's right oh my god who am i yeah who am i <laughs> and he was like he was like like on some level when you when you realize that these guys hadn't played in 20 years that they they got tired of the struggle they were probably relieved like all right i'm just gonna let this shit go it might haunt them but when these guys show up and say let's let's bring you back to that yeah you know uh i because i assume that when when son got sick at newport it was nerves right it was it was both nerves, but he had some intestinal problems. Too. Oh yeah, yeah, he had some intestinal problems. That that I mean, Newport footage, man, it made me cry. You know the Skip James thing. He got Garalnik there. You know, uh, yeah. And I've talked to him in here. You know, oh, and he's, Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, you know, he's like, it was like he's seeing all these stars. And then Skip James gets on stage, erases everything. Everything, because you know his sound, haunting. his vocal sound is so haunting, oh, so unique, and so special. Mm-hmm. He's so special. I mean, he really. He really is one of the great, great blues musicians. Oh, no, it's amazing. Yeah, so he must have been young when those guys... He was young, you know, and, and after he did those recordings, you know, it, I think for him spiritually, it was yeah. just too enti- too taxing and too emotional. Yeah. So that's why he walked away from it. Yeah, because know? he's doing something more than just playing music. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, you know, let's sit and dance music. Well, that's the thing you got to remember about these blues musicians. It's always more than just playing music. Yeah. It's yeah. living. It's living and feeling. You know, internalizing the music. That's why these guys still are so iconic and so precious today. Yeah. You know, and for me growing up, you know, in in New York City, it took me a while to really start to listen to the blues, you know. After I I went through Soul and R&B and Charlie Parker, then I came back to listening to the blues and said, whoa. Yeah, back to the source. Yeah, I came back to went right back to the source. When I first heard Charlie Patton, I said, "Whoa, oh man!" Like Bo Evil Blues and like just that 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 really. It's it's crazy, man. And it's and the thing the the amazing thing about it is what you have to mentally kind of pull you know put aside just to hear that the the intensity of those performances still comes through those shitty records. That's right. Because even the best recordings sound like shit. But you know, that's what's so special about those analog records. Yeah. You're getting everything. Yeah. You're getting the hiss. Yeah. You're getting the noise. I know, I'm back in it. Yeah, that's what makes it so special. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we got the digital stuff now, but in some ways, the digital stuff is homogenized the music. No, no, definitely. Cleaned it up in such a way that it just feels so, you know, you know, clean yeah yeah but the, but you go back you hear the hiss oh yeah you hear the hiss you say whoa yeah that's the yeah. real thing so uh when did your relationship with spike start uh it started in um 1988 i was producing on a series called eyes on the prize about the civil rights movement mm-hmm. up in boston and one day i was in my apartment and i got a phone call my son who was 10 at the time yeah picked up the phone yeah and he said, Dad, it's Spike Lee on the phone. And I thought he was pulling my leg. And I right. said, Jason, don't don't pull my leg. You know, I said, <laughs> I said, Dad, seriously, it's Spike. <laughs> and Spike on the phone. He had just finished Do the Right Thing. And he was getting ready to do a film about uh, jazz musicians with Denzel and mm-hmm. Wesley Snipes, called Mo, which became Mo Better Blues. Yeah. And he had known that I was into the music from a production manager friend of mm-hmm. mine that worked with him. And yeah. he, asked me, he asked me if I would edit Mo Better Blues. And... and- why do you think it was um what did you bring to it by knowing about the music that he couldn't get to 
I don't, you know, he's pretty good on the music because his father's a jazz musician. Right. You know, yeah, Bill yeah. Lee is, yeah. a, is a great jazz musician. Yeah. So Spike knew the music. I think I think what I brought to it basically was uh, an ally, uh-huh. a, a musical ally. Oh, okay. So when he said to one section of the film, he said, uh, I want to use, and I said, Mingus's Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. And he said, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or all blues, Miles is all blues, mm-hmm. you know. You know, and so... And then at the end when we used Love Supreme by Coltrane, I was just in sync. Because, you know, I play an instrument too. So what do you play? I play a little saxophone, a little flute. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, and I studied music, so I know a little about music. So, we were just in sync on the music. Yeah. You know? We were just in sync. Because he's, he's not a talkative man. Spike? No, he's not a talkative man, but he has very <laughs> strong, visceral ideas that he knows how to get across. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because he's got a very unique way of, uh, of, of working a camera. Oh, He's 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 learned to be to me one of the great film stylists. Oh, definitely. You know, he's definitely. he's got a great visual visual sense, and his politics is so strong throughout all of his films. You know, uh-huh. you don't even have to agree with it, but it's there. It's in your face. Yeah, and, and that's what makes him so special and so unique. Now, how many you did a few movies? You did Jungle Fever with Spike. I did Jungle Fever, uh, Clockers, Girl Six, Bamboozled, Bamboozled. That thing, you know. Hey, that doesn't get enough credit, that bamboozle. Well, you know, it's one of those films that I think as it ages, it's going to become more and more relevant every day. You, you, know, you, know? you know why I think that is? Why? Because the attention taken and put into the production value and the execution of the minstrel shows. Oh, they were fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah, they were fantastic. Like, because, you know, you literally had to battle yourself yeah. while you were watching it to, to not be entertained. At That's all. right. That's right. It's it, it's walking a very thin line, <laughs> right? Very thin line because think about it. I mean, you just saw Shuffle Along. It was choreographed by Savion, yeah, and he choreographed all those dance yeah. scenes, yeah, and and bamboozled, elevated, and they're fantastic, elevated. They're fantastic. So part of you wants to say, "Wow," but part of you wants to say, "Ooh," right? I thought, <laughs> no. like I think that like to me that that blew my mind. Yeah, but that's what Spike's all about, though. He he never is going to give it to you. So you say, "Oh, it's terrible." He's one. He's going to make it ambiguous. Yeah. So you as an audience say hmm confronted how should I deal with this yeah, yeah that's, that's how the, he is that's the well that's the provi- that he lets you do the thinking that's and right. wrestle with yourself he, he does every time and it's it's weird because you know people uh, like you said like his politics are defined and they're and they're 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 uh, you know they're hard hitting but he's still gonna and I think that's what a documentary should do in general right that's what they should do right yeah they should they should force you as a viewer to think about where do you stand on this particular issue. Right. They shouldn't they shouldn't say, This is how you should feel. This is what it should be. Then they shouldn't be agiprop. Right. They should give you the perspective from different angles so you walk away as a viewer saying, Hmm I don't know if that guy was a bad that's guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He seemed like a bad guy. Exactly. Yeah. But he maybe not be a hundred percent a bad guy. Right. Yeah. So what do you think about this uh, this kind of explosion of docs? Like, which is, you know, like, it just seems to be the new thing. It's like, you talk to anybody, like, I'm working on a doc. Are you? I think it's wonderful. Yeah? I mean, listen. Yeah. It takes, it takes a lot of these doc filmmakers who, who break in, basically working with very little money. It takes yeah. them years to get these things done. Yeah. You know, but you have to applaud the stories they're tackling, the issues they're tackling, the fact that people, the, the general public... Is, is understanding what a documentary does and is all about, and they're engaging in it, mm-hmm. you know, both on the small screen and in the big screen. I think it's great. I mean, I come up in a time when docs were just on PBS. Right, that was it. That right? was it. 
Yeah. Now you got them on Netflix. You got them on Amazon. You got them in the theaters. They're just coming out of everywhere. Yeah. And it's, I think it's fantastic. Now, the reality is doc filmmakers don't make money. Right. They and some are better than others. And some are better than others. But the fact that they're out there... I think it's great for the for the for the for the, the for docs. And you're a documentary filmmaker. I mean, that's what you do. You're an, el- you're an editor, but primarily I'm a doc filmmaker, and I love documentaries. Now, you know, you think about you, you know, talking about growing up in the '50s and the '60s. Yeah, I grew up watching Hollywood movies. Yeah, I grew up watching Burt Lancaster and you know, and yeah. Kirk Douglas and Joan Crawford. And, you know, so when I got into the business, initially I thought I want to just make feature films. I want to edit feature films. Did you? At the beginning, did you? Edit I worked. Some? I worked as an apprentice on a low-budget feature film, but then the editor on that film introduced me to the world of documentaries. Through what? You know, through which whose work? Like, what did you see first? He, you... he. Well, the films that we were working on together. But then, when I started to explore documentaries, I went to the work of Al Mazel's, yeah. the Mazel Brothers, sure. Salesman, mm-hmm. Give Me Shelter. You know, Penny Baker. Yeah. You know, Robert Drew, who did Primary, about the Kennedy family. Right. You know. Did you ever see that Friedkin doc about the the, the death row <clears throat> in prisoner that he, like, William Friedkin, I, I haven't seen it I either. I have seen it. He, his first experience was doing a doc for TV. I, oh, it's hard to, it was in Chicago. Right, like yeah, 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 yeah. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen it. I haven't either. You know, but then Michael Apted's 7-Up sure. series. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... When I started in, when in my early twenties, when I got introduced to Doc, I just fell in love with him. Well, when you first got introduced to it, did you find that y- y- was the alignment that you could educate and that you could further the um, the dialogue about about civil rights specifically, or just that you like Docs? Specifically, it was the fact that as an editor, as an editor, I felt more empowered editing the Doc than the feature film. Why? Because when you get a feature film, they give you a script. Right. They give you the scenes with the actors. Yeah. You know? And unless you're really a knucklehead, you, you know how to put it together. Yeah. You know, with a doc, nine times out of ten, a director or a producer would come in and say, I have this great idea. I shot all this footage. I'm not sure how it should go together. I'm going to go away. I'm going to let you wrestle with it. Yeah. And I love that challenge. Yeah. At first, I was terrified of that challenge. Oh, my God. If I, What if I fail? What if I fail? Right. But... Then I start to embrace it, yeah. you know, and the idea of being sort of the director in absentia, yeah. you know, being able to sit there and shape and mold the footage and give it rhyme or reason yeah. became such a exhilarating feeling, uh-huh. even when I failed. Right. You know, it was like, wow, yeah. I helped make a film. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. And I know David must have felt like that when she was doing this film because she was a force in helping shape the direction of the story. It, the editors are, they're almost all of it. All of them. I, but all I mean, the, like, you know, it all happens with you guys. Always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always. The, the truth of it, yeah. always. Yeah, because like all you got, you're just, <clears throat> you're just hoping you got coverage. That's and right. then you go to a guy like you and you go like, I think I got all the coverage. Put it, put a rough cut together, and then let's let's see what we got. Let's see what we can make of it. Yeah, right. yeah. And then yeah. it's sort of like you got that other thing. I do. <laughs> That's right. So when you started, you were just you were cutting film. I was cutting film. Super. Oh my! I can't even imagine how long it would take. It didn't take long because no, it, no, it didn't really take long. It just took. It took a certain amount of patience to know when not to make a cut because you didn't want to have a lot of little pieces. Yeah. So you had to be able to say when you were going to make a cut. It's sort of like, you know, uh, Bresson, the photographer, is talking about the decisive moment. That moment, yeah. 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 You had to have the same attitude when you used to edit film. Right. When was the moment to right. make the cut? Yeah, you yeah. Know? You got to find it. Yeah. yeah. At first, in the beginning, you would be sort of like, 
you know, should I make it here? It would take you 10 or 12 minutes to make a cut. Right, Unless right. you got more experience, you could do it faster. Right. Oh, right. And <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it's just yeah. like anything else, you adapt to the you technology adapt. available. That's right. Now, like, when you do, like... Uh, when Spike does a documentary, right? Did he did did he did he do Four Little Girls? He did Four Little Girls and When the Levees Broke. Oh, that's the When the Levees Broke. You did that one too yeah. with him. And the sequel, If God Is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. Yeah. Who did the Emmett Till documentary? Oh, that was Stanley Nelson. That was a hell of a yeah, documentary. great filmmaker, great filmmaker. But when you do a documentary like Four Little Girls, which is you know a story that you know should be retold over and over again, that you know. When Spike does something like that, as opposed to a scripted feature, what's the uh, what's the dynamic between you guys? The dynamic was a great one, you know. In that one, he said to me, "I want you to be really engaged in this, not only as an editor but as a co-producer." So when we went through the whole research process and finding the archival material, I went down with him on the first shoots, the first interviews, and stuff. You know, we would spend, we would have a he would have a particular strategy like. After we shot all these interviews, we would go into the editing room for like two or three weeks straight, like seven in the morning from seven to 12, and just watch the interviews together and talk about what we liked, yeah. what I liked, what he liked, yeah. you know? Yeah. And we would do that through all the interviews. And then we would talk about how do we see the film unfolding? One of the first questions Spike asked me when we were shaping the film, should there be narration? I said, I didn't think so. I thought that the people of Birmingham can tell their own story, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So the challenge was to how to make sure we told the story. And it was, again, sort of like what we did with with Two Trains. It was to tell the story of these four little girls at the same time as we gave the, gave the audience the bigger context of what was happening in the civil rights movement at that time. Right. And to bring it together with that church bombing. Again, the confluence of ideas right. coming to the church bombing. The horror. And, yeah, and, and we were in sync with that. Yeah. So it was always this give and take with Spike and I on that and on when the levees broke. And, and you know, I guess he's coming to you in that situation and the relationship you built as the guy with the experience. Yeah, that I'd done a lot of docs. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I did a lot of docs. Did he like doing it? He loved docs. He loves them. Yeah? He loves all kinds of films. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He loves making films. And then when, and the Levy, the Levy documentary... To to sort of like you know really kind of isolate that narrative that you know through negligence or whatever this is you know going to change the 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 composition of that city and push you know the 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 people that that lived there and built the history of it out and they're going to let that happen yeah so that was that what had to be shown that's had to be shown yeah and he you know again he's not afraid to un to uncover and dig into every aspect of an issue. Yeah. And that's what makes those films work. That's what makes what the Levy's, when the Levy's broke such a great film. So what do you do with this movie now? What's the life of a documentary? These films need exposure. You know, they need exposure. They need to go to festivals. They need to go to markets. They need to go any place where people can have an opportunity to see it. We also want to not only get, you know, distribution in the United States, but around the world. Any place that may feel the connection to this music, we hope that someone will buy it and show it. Well, I, I love the movie, and uh, you know, I, I wish you the best of luck with it. What does it take to get it on Netflix? It takes somebody from Netflix watching that film and picking up the phone and calling Ben. <laughs> People need to to not only you know rediscover or discover for the first time that music, but also to to remain freshly aware of the struggle that is ongoing. It's like the Jewish thing. I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy, and you know I'm not yeah. religious or anything, but that the never forget thing applies never across forget. the board. It's never forget. Never forget.
So I hope that Two Trains Running gets distribution so everyone can see it. Hopefully, it'll end, I hope it, it maybe ends up on Netflix or somewhere where you can watch it. It's uh, it's uh, it's good. It's very good. Roots music is definitely something at the foundation of the Handsome Family's sound. Uh, it was very exciting for me to talk to Brett and Rennie in Albuquerque at the uh, Los Poblanos uh, farm and, and ranch there where I stay. And uh, I, I love their records. Their most recent album is called Unseen. It's available now. And this is me and Brett and Rennie Sparks. The Handsome Family, talking about music and depression and art and New York and stuff. All right, so listen. When I knew you lived here, I'm like, if I could go to their house, I pictured a, a, like, it's a little, I pictured a gloomy place (laughs) with a lot of things, maybe some uh, uh, carnival relics. It's like that room that uh, Van Gogh made for Gauguin with the enormous sunflowers all around right. it. So, yeah. yeah, she's done that before. Yeah. How'd you end up in Albuquerque? I'm from here. You are? Yeah, I grew up in the Southwest. I was born in Texas and grew up around. Well, that's not that close. Well, Panhandle. <laughs> right. Dust Bowl, Perryton, yeah. little tiny oil town. In My Texas. father worked in the oil fields. Really? So I grew up in Odessa. Really? Ouch. No kidding. Or so that's sparse Hobbs, kinda. New Mexico. Hobbs. Yeah. Last picture yeah. show territory. It's a wonder I got out. Yeah. <laughs> I spent every summer in a town right next to where the last picture show was shot in McInerney, Texas. How how close to uh, reality was that? It very too close. So like it's you, hard to watch. So there was literally like what, 150, 200 people in the town or more? Oh, the the town my mother grew up in where my mother and father met was had a population of about 70. Oh, my God. They had a Baptist church yeah. and a Methodist church, yeah. a post office, and a bank. And that was it. And that was it. But I thought the old men played checkers in the bank. They didn't actually, <laughs> there wasn't any <laughs> commerce going on in there. No, they just played dominoes because oh. the, the banks the banks failed in, during the Depression. <laughs> so it was just a shattered burnout building where these old men just played dominoes. Oh, my God. This is so, real. So <laughs> when you were a kid, what was the dream? Just to get out? I mean, what the hell do you do? Like, I know that, that those towns existed in, in America, and I've driven past them. But I have no sense of, like, what do you do with the space in your mind? Why well, I, I can hear it in your music now that you bring it up. Yeah, it's there. And it's where I learned how to sing. I mean, in the Baptist church. I mean, I don't cling to those values sure. anymore. Well, but, that's probably good. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I just you know it's all all these weird accidents happen to you and i just kind of stumbled on classical music and my mother started me playing piano when i was real young so there was a piano teacher so yeah there was a a good piano piano there was a really good piano teacher in in odessa it'd be a lifesaver just one person in town that's right right it's true started really getting into beethoven and chopin really bach and all that stuff and i started playing music and started getting beat up regularly (laughs) yeah i started getting my ass kicked like every day by the uh, in odessa texas by the rigor by the jocks rigor kids (laughs) well i'm odessa texas that's friday night lights territory right that's mojo Permian high so, so you were sort of the nerdy music kid? I was beyond nerdy. Yeah. 
There's an, there's I was an album the, title. I was the object of derision. You were the one. Totally. There, there was no other. There was no crew. There was no support. No, no, you were the crew. There was Darren, and there was some other <laughs> dorks. You know, big, tall, fuck, like lanky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy, red hair, you know. And then where'd you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, so yeah, the chances of our meeting were pretty slim. <laughs> Which town? I'm, I'm from uh, Smithtown on Long Island on the East Shore. Yeah. So, um, on the North Shore, sorry. I haven't been there in a while. But uh, no, yeah, I'm New York, New York Jew, no connection to Texas or really? Mexico whatsoever. What a, yeah. Couldn't understand a word he said when he showed up in New York. It was like he spoke another kind of English. We had. So you know, that was probably was the attraction. My, 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 <laughs> no, daddy, exactly. my daddy is like, you know, hello, you know, and, and your father's it, 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 it just, just like, translated I all night. I can't understand a word. <laughs> Forget it. But, well, you, so you went to New York to, and you met her there. When did you start in the music? Well, this is it? so sad. He went to Long Island to SUNY Stony Brook where I was going to college thinking, because it's 60 miles from New York, but it's Long Island, which right. is a long 60 another, miles yeah. from Manhattan. Yeah. It's another world. So yeah. he went there thinking, well, 60 miles in Texas isn't very far so he'd be right outside of the city it's true but it was a was so a that you went there for college yes graduate school in what music history really yeah did you not finish? even apply <laughs> yeah. yeah I have a master's degree you have a master's degree in music history yeah well that's impressive you could well, it's okay oh yeah it's like gravy train <laughs> well it, it's it's like yeah I spent whatever like seven years just not even it's not even playing music it's it's thinking about music right and writing music and looking at the way it you know unrolls over time but that informs something yeah well course. i just wanted to do it yeah i, I, you didn't, I didn't have really, any plans i was when i went to unm yeah where i graduated from you know they were always trying to encourage people oh you'll never get a job doing this yeah so you should go into music education I was right like, well, i don't want to be a fucking band teacher <laughs> the, the drunky kind of like angry dude <laughs> well, trying yeah. to get a bunch of yeah. freshmen okay, to now music. Yeah, now we're gonna learn right of spring. That's right. One, two, three, four. What's that like? What's that? That song that The baby elephant. Baby walk? elephant. Walk. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's a marching. It's like always a stage band <laughs> number. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's it. So. You, but you're not making music, or you are when you go to graduate school. You went to UNM here. Oh yeah, I started. Um, I went to UNM and I did all kinds of music. Most yeah. of it kind of weird, avant garde. What year? Uh, I graduated twelve hundred there in eighty five from UNM. So I went to New York in eighty six. Really? Yeah. So you were doing like noise music? And yeah, it was also in a new wave band that that, I, that I wrote all the songs for. It was real new wave. What band? <laughs> Just you? It was a band called Sleep. There's a band called Sleep, strangely enough, from Albuquerque. That's yeah. actually very popular. They tour internationally. But that was your band in the eighties. Your art it had rock nothing band? to do with me. But that was the name of, of my band. Yeah, right. They took it later. It was probably just some weird side guest or something. I, I knew a guy who here who did experimental music that when I was in high school changed my life. This guy Steve LaRue and he he had a band called Jungle Red that played twice a year. This sounds kinda of familiar. It's but... just him and another dude who I think has since passed. Hmm. And uh and they would uh, it involved uh, there was guitars that were taped with duct tape and, and hit during the show. There was um uh pottery breaking. A fiesta wear destroying. Oh, so this is <laughs> avant-garde wear. situation. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. People like a, that can you know, change changer. your life. Yeah, yeah. They do they man. really do? So who who sort of and what was your musical background? 
the Ramones. Ramones. <laughs> That's all, yeah. They were just a local band I saw every weekend. You know? Did you go? Yeah. You were part of it? Yeah, so I, just, I had no concept that there was a punk rock movement. It was just we all liked the Ramones and the New York Dolls. The Ramones and, when they were like, you know, their audience was like girls and before there was yeah. a mosh pit. Like in the mid-70s? Yeah, and then I remember going to London in like the early 80s and seeing somebody with the Ramones uh a, like the Ramones one of their albums painted on the back of their jacket and I was like oh my god it's somebody from Long Island I never occurred no, to me like someone else might have heard here. of the Ramones so it's like you're from the island uh huh no no well it's interesting how that like that whole time that like how much the American thing did inform the British yeah. thing like I didn't I've, I've only put that together recently I just talked to Legs McNeil a couple of weeks ago because they reissued um, a new they did another a new issue, edition of Please Kill Me, which is the greatest book ever written. <laughs> and, uh, but like I talked to Chrissy Hine, I talk, I've talked to people about that, that when the Heartbreakers showed up in London, it was like a huge game changer when Johnny Thunders and those That's great. junkies. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you were watching them when you were a kid, basically? Yeah, you know, it was just, that was local music. And you go into the city. Yeah, you go to, you know, you take, take the, the train, train into the city, and then, you know, you well, get you the 5 a.m. train back, and you say you slept over your friend's house, and here you are. <laughs> you used to see them on Long Island, like. Yeah, there was a lot of clubs all over. my father's place, and Long like, Island, just yeah. weird little Yeah, it was clubs. really a sad moment when suddenly these guys with skinheads showed up and like pushed us girls to the back of the room, but. They, these were our boyfriends for a long time. These Isn't were people cool? we just loved. It was because it was just yeah. rock and roll at that yeah, time when, before it Joe got. Ramon, but it was I mean, he poppy, did some really, yeah. really pop, beautiful, sweet oh, yeah. songs. Joey, we were all in love with him. Joey. And he's so like I just watched some stuff. I just watched a documentary on Danny Fields, and they had a lot of footage of Joey dancing and stuff. And he was so sweet. It's pretty lovable. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's. I once saw him and his father at Vis- at Veselka eating soup opposite each other. <laughs> And it was, it was just so cute because they were just having lunch, but the profile was the same. Just a little Joey Bow <laughs> dad. Amazing. So, did you play in rock bands then? I played bassoon. What? I don't know why. I think I wanted the oboe, but well, I said the wrong name, and then I was too embarrassed to take but it back. But this is starting to make sense, though, with his education, and then you played bassoon, and this sort of like kind of weird, dense, you know, almost... Um, atmospheric music you do now it kind of lends itself towards your both your skill set maybe so you know maybe there's some 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 sense to it but no i i just wanted to have a boyfriend who was in a band maybe that was like like the the height of dreams i had when we met in in college we definitely had record collections that yeah, that we went had, to see a lot of like bands a Venn together. Diagram, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you got the meat puppets, cool. It's yeah, like, which oh, one? You get the Minutemen. Yeah. Men. Up on the sun. Yeah, the meat puppets too, of course. I talked to Kirk. Oh yeah, we toured yeah, with, we with him. For <laughs> yeah, we, that was great. interesting. They are interesting. Yeah, because yeah. they, they, they don't they're commit a, to any any sound. Other, yeah, they just, just do what they want. Yeah, yeah, they're just not a lot of people do that. No, they're fearless. They're kind of into it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's great. Trippy shit. Yeah, and I felt like when I was in his presence, we were like in another dimension. Like that was Kirk's dimension. That he's was definitely beautiful. one of his. Well, he's one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, he's got his own time zone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, he's, Long he's seen he it all. Run. Well, what other stuff were you guys going to see? Like what? What other? Butthole surfers. Uh, we used to go see oh Butthole Sonic surfers, Youth. and we used Noisy to go bands. to CBGBs. And, really, you like those yeah. guys, huh? Yeah. I, but then you, I, I don't think like you, it all. you maybe played me one of your dad's eight tracks of Patsy Cline, and I was sort of that was it. We were I was ruined. Uh, well, there was that time like when everything kind of collapsed, like before. 
the whole indie rock explosion like before Nirvana. Yeah. Like and after punk was definitely dead and post punk was even dead. There was this period that really sucked and we were everyone was kind of casting around for something to listen to. And then, yeah, you start listening to your dad's old Hank Williams and Patsy Cline stuff, and you're like, this is the shit. Right. This is the same thing. Yeah. You know? And, it, it's and a, I know that's yeah. a cliche, and everybody says it, but I don't know the first if it's time a cliche. I heard Hank Williams, I was like, But it's a road that leads backwards forever. Right. So it's... It's, it's only cliche to this small community of people that would consider it yeah. a cliche. To most normal people, or not normal people, but mainstream people, it's like, you listen to who? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's Hank, all, you mean Bo Cephas? Right. There, I think there's generations of people over and over again who find Hank Williams, who find like the Harry Smith anthology of That's American folk same. music, yeah. things that are these these like gateposts that open up worlds to people. But over and over again, people find them and think they're the only ones who's ever heard this. But we all end up just and on this time travel backwards and backwards. And, you know, yeah, it's never ending. Like no, I'm just great. now starting to get into like, like I listen. I'm I'm back buying vinyl. You got vinyl? Yeah, of course. And like these uh, those Tammy Wynette records, oh, the George Jones records, beautiful. and the Patsy Cline records, and then these folk records. That guy Hurley is his name, Mike Hurley. Do you know that guy? No, yeah, he's a guitar player. Yeah, yeah. That first album on Young Folk. I don't know that. Like d- destroying. I don't have that record. Yeah, Bert Janch. I just started yeah. listening oh, he's to. Great, yeah. yeah. It's oh yeah I, yeah I then just, you get into all that Scottish British Isles kind of stuff that next thing you know awesome. you'll be looking at 16th century broadsides thing. trying to read the music <laughs> going I mean back to we've, we've gone down I got that, it <laughs> ready we've now gone down that rabbit hole you know with with the whole English folk thing yeah and, yeah, yeah Martin Carthy and trying to trace some of these folk but, songs backwards it it goes forever and it goes across you know. It goes into other countries and, and then comes Scandinavia. here through Appalachia, yeah, right, yeah, right, Appalachia, yeah, and it must be here from the Revolution. I mean, Scots Irish, yeah, from and Ulster. you can hear it all through the country music, yeah, yep. It's wild, man. You know it what else wild. fascinates me it's is the um, is the bra- the org uh, the accordion in Mexican music mm, comes yeah. from the Germans, right. and yeah, Polish, yeah. Why were the Germans in Texas? They were because they were, um, oh, this is good. <laughs> not a very yeah. nice story, but the Mexican government paid Germans, um, East uh, Western Europeans, to come. You, you can come have some land asses. if you agreed to kill some Indians. So mm. basically, they were like, so it's a military thing. Kill some right. Apaches, you can have a farm. So they were kind of like yeah. So these Germans the and Poles and and a lot of Europeans came and were Mexican citizens, and then they decided, well, we've killed all the Apaches now. Let's kill the Mexicans and become our own country. And that's kind of why Texas wanted its independence. But they became part of America, and so that was what the Alamo was kind of about too. Remember? So. Oh my God! See, like I'm glad you're teaching me history. I, I she's a, a lot of people in Texas reader. will tell you, oh yeah, my family used to be Mexican citizens because they and they think that maybe they have some kind of Spanish roots, but really it's just that their families agreed to <laughs> to come over and <laughs> yeah. kill Indians. Sure. Well, and you know there was money for scalps too. That was when um, the Mexican government was giving money for. For any dark-haired scalp, so that was <laughs> kind of a bad thing. Even Mexican indigenous. People. Well, if you found a yeah, if you found a long-haired, dark, black-haired scalp, you could get money for it. Wow, that wolf like, pelts were pretty good commerce back then. Right, because well, there's that bit in uh, is it um, is it which which Pack and Pop movie uh, is it the Wild Bunch where maybe where they the Germans bring the cannons yes to, right. But that's where all this—that's yeah. where all the polka came from. Yeah, yeah, that's but so. That's amazing. The Mexicans yeah. did some good stuff with that music. Great, amazing. Yeah. So, all right. So you're not in bands. You're playing bassoon. <laughs> yeah. She's writing. writing I was always wanted to be a writer, <clears throat> uh, which you know another 
worthless pursuit in a lot of ways, but Come um, on now. didn't know what to do with it. You know, just but you do to, right now. You I have do. books. Yeah, I do. Well, she writes all the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, all the, all the, but, uh, I don't write any lyrics. No? You're the music guy? I come from a long well, history of, I think, you know, uh, dark storytellers. So well, that's, that's the thing about like, because I think most of, I, at least a few records I listen to, I don't know, I don't go back to the 90s with you guys. But they seem to be concept records in that they're whole pieces. I hope so. They're records instead of albums. Right. And they, you know, they're, they, that, the, the last one was, is that the one, the box? Yeah, with the animals, yeah. Oh, my God. People kept asking me if it was a children's record, though, so it got a little confusing, but it, it is not a children's record. It would be one of those children's records that's a life changer. Yeah. yeah. Well, she wanted it to be to like be fair, a medieval bestiary, but one of the things everybody's that, like, oh, it's, an, it's a kid's record. One of the things that informed my childhood was my parents, um, they had all, two sets of records. We had either um, Jewish comedy records. You know, Alan Sherman. Alan Sherman, Tom Lehrer. Hello, or uh, We had... Folk music, like from the fifties in Greenwich Village. So they had sure. they had Peter Paul and Mary, and they had the Kingston Trio, and they had Burl Ives, and they put those records Burl on Ives. for me to go to sleep to, thinking of them as very calming records. But if you listen to the lyrics to those songs, they're usually quite terrifying songs. So yeah, I, like, I made the mistake. The Burl. Burl. Burl's a little haunting, man. Yeah, Burl is. Like I kind of remember him from variety shows <laughs> when I was oh, a yeah. kid. That you voice know. For, is quite quite otherworldly and, and those songs that he sang were always about you know little things happening in the woods bad. <laughs> swimming in the water yeah. but yeah. uh and then he you know even the whole story of Burl Ives is even scarier because he was the one who testified before like some senate committee that Pete Seeger was a communist <laughs> he was a, yeah he's a name a namer yeah. of names so then he became a sort of persona non grata in so the world well. yeah so he kind of gets swept to the side by and then Pete yeah. Seeger, but that, but so that's really the difference between sort of uh, populist, you, you know, music about issues and then fairy tale music. Yeah, it is like Burl. I was saying a lot of fairy tale music is what I would say, and I think I think I, I you know, you say you fuck your mind up. Well, I feel like I've kind of found Burl Ives again in my life. So I was looking for him. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. No, in a beautiful way. He's everything to me. That was when I shaped everything about my life. Was late at night listening to those Burl Ives records and just frozen in fear. You know, the kind of terror you can only have when you're a little kid and you can't move. You're so terrified of the songs. Oh, so they really hit you like yeah. that because, like, that was, uh, you know, that's what fairy tales were. Yeah, they were these portals yeah, into the, the the dark, morally slippery universe of humans. Yeah, you they know? can open up, open up doors that maybe you don't. Do you remember expect a song that just made you go like, "Oh shit"? <laughs> oh, what's the the little black bug? The little black bug. Yeah, yeah, the little black bug swimming in the water. That one's quite terrifying. But even like on top of Old Smokey, the ones that, you know, they, My Darling Clementine, those songs are really terrifying. Horrible. People die oh, in them. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like My Darling <laughs> yeah. Clementine, not only is she drowning, but her father's watching her going, sorry, <laughs> dreadful sorry, but I'm not, I ain't coming in there to get you. You look so pretty when you're drowning. <laughs> yeah, those songs have become muted over time and don't have that. I know. Because like, you really look at them, it's like, whoa. But they've got to connect with you on that level. Yeah, they and do. they And they did you. Like, yeah. I mean, like, I, I know those songs kind of, but I, I don't I don't register them in that same way. Yeah, We're not either. supposed to anymore. We're supposed to just enjoy the, the pretty melody, but I made the mistake well, I of listening. Always, I think that was always the point on some level. I don't yeah. think they were made to no, terrify children. Certainly not. My parents wanted me to go to sleep. They didn't want me up in their room screaming at night about things under the bed. They wanted... You know. I wonder what the intent was. Why those stories? I think that must come from the, the sort of like English and Gaelic tradition of yeah. living a hard life. 
Some of them were new, like newspaper stories. They were about actual events. Uh-huh. I mean, there and may have been commemorate an event. I feel like there, there may have been a theory that if you terrify the child enough, they'll be too scared to get out of the bed. So that could have worked as well. Or maybe it's more like you know buying a pet so the kid will learn about death. <laughs> yeah, like true. you know buy the kid yeah. a gerbil. I'm not telling my kid about death, but listen to this record, exactly. and I'll come back in an hour and see which, how you're doing. <laughs> exactly, life is hard. <laughs> here's here's a fun way to learn that. <laughs> Yeah, we need that now, you know. Yeah, and it is important. Kinda. You know, I think kids need. Yeah. To. Do you feel like you're on a mission? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't wouldn't say that, but I do think that um, we have a strange reluctance to discuss mortality in America, as if we if we just don't say it, it won't happen. But oh yeah, we hide old people. That's not the yeah. case. Yeah, and you know, we're very. Um, yeah, we're not even death, but old age. We're afraid to even exactly you know, say anything about. So yeah, well, there was a time where you know. Where people, grandma used to die, die in, in the, the living room with everybody around her. Yeah, in a bed that the, yeah. the hospital bed. Right. Do you did you have that in your life? No, no. That must have been small town though. I mean, that like how did people die in Odessa, Texas? Well, Odessa was bigger, but yeah, <laughs> in a playing small dominoes town, in the bank yeah, and just you'd, keel over. <laughs> you be, you'd, you'd go look at him in the church, you know, and then you right. carry him to the graveyard, which is. 200 yards away and you'd put them in the ground when did you start making music together we were married for five years before we ever wrote a song together and, and I you was, were playing your avant-garde uh, i was music? always doing my thing oh i was playing in pop bands in chicago and a good heavy metal band rockabilly bands when did you get to chicago we moved to chicago she went to graduate school in ann arbor for creative writing Oh, that's Cha-ching. a good town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was a good town. And it's good for that. It's a good good program. It's for good that. music history there. And it's yeah. a nice college yeah. town. There used it to was... be a pretty good comedy club there. Yeah. It was a nice town. It was an easy town to be a kid in. Good record Only stores. so much trouble you could get into. Yeah, it's a college. Yeah. College but uh, we, yeah, we wanted to live somewhere a little realer, and Chicago was, was as real I, as it I, got back I like then. Chicago. Yeah, yeah, I love Chicago. It's, it's a great place to. It's a great place to try to be an artist. It really is. We're going to Encouraging place, yeah. How so? Because I talked to a lot of people from the comedy world, but I haven't talked to anybody really about the music world of Chicago. Well, when we lived there in late '80s, early '90s, it was just sort of deserted. So you could you could get your own uh, huge warehouse space and open a theater. You could you know have a band practice there. You could do whatever you wanted. Nobody really cared. So it was great, sort of. Um, a lot of raw space. Yeah, we would just go to people's people. Everyone had a loft space, and everyone was just doing their thing there, and it was really, really exciting. So you had one of those sort of like, uh, you know, home slash loft slash yeah. performance a, environments. Yeah, yeah, it was a dump. It yeah. was five. It was three thousand square feet, and it was five hundred dollars a month. And they, they, you didn't have shows. You had parties. Where oh, people yeah. were parties and shit. They were happening. <laughs> yeah, right. thank God. <laughs> yeah, they just were leave parties. the door open and Let's see if people come. It, they were parties. Um, and who was it, like? Who were some of the people in the scene there? Anybody that kind of transcended? Like, hey, look, look there's here. <laughs> yeah. Well, every you know that was when all that stuff was coming up. It was like Liz Fair, Smashing Pumpkins, Serge Overkill, and Lounge Axe was like in full effect. With the the club Tweedies. Oh yeah, great bands Wyatt from Drag Tom, City. And oh yeah, everybody Real in Drag Jockey. City played there. The Palace played there on a regular basis. Bloodshot Records, all those bands. Uh, all that's the more insurgent of a, country stuff was coming up. At the time, too, Bloodshot uh, just got founded. I mean, it was a really. Yeah. I get a lot of records from Bloodshot Records. There definitely a, a there's definitely a context there. Yeah, yeah. The Americana kind yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all friends, um, yeah. and we contribute usually to their like compilations and stuff. Oh, you do, but and Jeff Tweedy yeah. seemed like he was really inspiring to so many people. He was sort of Jeff helping a, a lot big, of people. A big factor in our yeah. lives. He definitely. was then. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, what, that uh, was how we met him. Oh, really? 
It was in Chicago, yeah. And did he? Did you work with him? Yeah, and he loaned us I a lot of equipment. I think his wife a demo to him. His wife uh, ran Lounge Jacks, which was the great club in town. And yeah. so, um, yeah, through her, we met him, and a lot of bands met him, and he just was so helpful to everybody. Anybody he could help, he did. And he gave a lot of people great support slots, and he gave us all the equipment we used for our third record. He lent us for through to, the trees, to use. And he's so on through the trees. For like six months, we got all this equipment we could have never afforded. So but really at that, at the, at initially, where was where was Wilco at that time? What year are we talking about? I this mean, was he, the beginning. Yeah. So, but he, he already made, set well, up Well, actually, we, we've supported Uncle Tupelo, so we knew I him loved back Uncle then. Tupelo. Yeah. I so, just met Jeff for the first time. Yeah, he's a great, smart guy. And uh, yeah, so right after Uncle Tupelo, when they'd broken up, he was kind of I, I think he was sort of like we knew he'd formed another band but nobody had heard it yet and right. you know AM just and then come out. Uh, right. Sunville came out and they were really doing well and we thought oh poor Jeff well I hope he's going to be okay <laughs> he landed on his feet he did alright he sure did he's okay I know what you, <laughs> you mean. don't have to worry about him he's and got Jay enough people following kind of yeah. kept doing his thing and yeah. you know and he kept doing it and he, he kind of stayed in that but yeah that's place. what happens it's weird and that's cool i mean it, 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 on every record there's some stellar songs like i don't i don't really understand people that that stay in a groove if it's not working and they're not being forced to stay in that groove by a record company to be redundant like you know that i mean i understand i guess if that's the music you play there's a dedication people do to what it. they do you exactly know, i think you can't you don't really it takes a lot of guts to go all well, over the place. Well, I think a lot of people but do you have to want to go all over the place. Some people they're expected mm-hmm. to do too, which is kind of a bugaboo. Yeah, but Some who's expecting people, you to? Uh, yeah, I don't your know. Your audience, right? It's like I need to, be, I, I need more up tempo songs on this record. <laughs> I don't know because it, it's going to be boring. I don't think anybody or thinks about that al- anymore. I'm going to lose my my alternative uh, country yeah. fans if there's not enough honky talk numbers. on I guess that's true. I don't do that anymore, but I used to. Yeah, you don't. I don't, do th- I don't think about that anymore. Yeah, record sales aren't important anymore. So. <laughs> Why well, no? Well, that's it. The, the yeah, audience, that's very true. The people you're playing to are you're inventing them. First of all, they're yeah. in your head usually. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's you true. Know, if there yeah. is guys that are thinking like you, who the fuck needs them? Right. Like, you know, those four people <laughs> yeah. like, duh, sold out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is no selling out anymore. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, but that's like if you have a certain type of brain that's insecure or dark. That, you know, instead of going like, we're doing new things and this is great, you're going to be like, no, that one dude, Stu, is going to be yeah, upset. he's going to be pissed <laughs> if I don't have the ding, 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 you know. No, oh, just man. No, I mean, this, this, any kind of creative life is so hard to navigate and survive in that you might as well do what, you, what gives you joy because there's no other reason well, to do it. Well, you know, it. it's like you find your voice over time, though. And you then do. You stop worrying about shit like that. You do. And, and you say, this is what I'm doing now. Yeah, I'm and surprised. And you make a decision and you, you carry on. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that. That, that there are definitely waves of insecurity that continue to come. Oh yeah! Oh my God! I don't think that ever ends. It's crazy. I and mean, every, I, they yeah. just sh- just you know, pivots, as yeah. they say. Everyone I've ever been jealous of, and when I've met them and talked to them, they're always just as trembly as I am. So oh, yeah, it never ends. They're all fucking nuts, and they yeah. hate themselves, yeah. and they're having a hard time. <laughs> yeah. It's such a. It's sort of like this disappointing. It's a disappointing moment when you realize you wasted all that. <laughs> energy assuming <laughs> when I get to so there amaz- yeah. this person is having an amazing right. life and you meet them they're yeah. like oh, I'm at the end of my rope yeah it, it kind of made me love all my idols even more realizing that we're all just doing this because this is what we want to do there is no which you know, idols though did you get to meet where you were sort of Lou like, Reed I think was, was one especially uh, that um, you know he was somebody I, yeah I thought well what if I was ever Lou Reed everything would be okay but he had problems obviously just like anybody else and you know we played some big shows with him we did some Leonard Cohen did? shows with him where we were all doing Leonard Cohen songs so we spent a lot of time backstage because we were all doing like one or two songs so talking to him and just just talking about nothing just a sweet 
Yeah. You know, generous. Because yeah, you don't go up to Lou Reed. Gentleman. Oh, Was he? Man, yeah. I'm your biggest fan. You know, Because when somebody comes up to you, yeah. I mean, it's nice and you appreciate it. Yeah. But when people come up to you and say, oh, I love you, man. I love you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah. there's a little spark in you that says, well, that's cool. I'm this shit. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, you know, you've heard it and it's like, this is... Doesn't really, no, yeah, it doesn't yeah, solve it all your problems. It doesn't really <laughs> advance the plan right, right at all. And then you got to be gracious. You go from like, on <laughs> like, the ship cool, to like, that's cool, man, things. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah when it's I Nick, bit of a Nick Cave, I did the same thing. I asked him about a question about, what are those bells on Nick Cave? Let Love In, you know? And he's did like, he? oh, yeah, we had this big thing in the studio. He's excited. The first thing, yeah. So, it's like, yes, people, something, you know. So, Nick Cave and Lou Reed, now we're getting to, now we're getting into the area. <laughs> That's the idle area. Yeah. Now we're getting into the tone. There's like a, a transcendent grace in this music that isn't in the person when you sit down and talk to them in everyday life. They're, they're not the, shining. They're not glowing. They're right? the vessel. They're just, well, they um, might be an asshole. They yeah. might just be a racist. Yeah, regular you know, guys. Right? Yeah, I, I remember hearing recently, I heard Loretta Lynn on a show for a record she had just put out, and they started talking to her about politics, and, and I was Careful. like, don't, don't do it. Careful. <laughs> Well, because like I didn't like. Of course, she's going to be who she's going to be. She sure. comes from where she yeah, comes from. Of course, but it's sort of, and it didn't necessarily even taint her for me. You know, like I I would have assumed as much. But sure, it what, makes it more mysterious, though. I think if in you a way. don't talk about it. No, I think I'm yeah. saying when I hear the person and I realize they're just a person that isn't extraordinary right. in any way, shape, or except form. For the but gift. except when they do this one thing, where suddenly the world takes on another dimension. I use music as a drug in a way. Like like the, it's taken me just yeah. getting older to get into the depth of even listening to lyrics. Like I like you know I like a hook. I like, uh, yeah. you know. You like I, a more visceral thing. So, I do. So yeah. Leonard Cohen's a lot more intellectual, maybe. Well, it's I'm more, getting there. I'm getting there with yeah. some of these folk singers yeah. now. Yeah, but I still have you to You want to feel it in your gut first. and I, think I definitely do. I definitely. want to feel it in my heart first. So maybe it's like the emotion comes from, from me in words first. So Well, sometimes like. I'm, I'm like, going top down and you're going bottom up. Yeah, I guess so. But we can I, meet in the middle occasionally. Sure. So that's what's no, kind of interesting. <laughs> that's definitely it. But like, uh, what, um, when did you make the first record? The late 90s? Early like 90s. Early 90s. <laughs> 93, 94. And that wasn't like the records you're doing now, though. Uh, that was kind of, kinda, of yeah, wandering around then. in the forest. Oh, yeah? yeah. Well, but I, not we were, defining the forest. <laughs> well, the, the seeds were definitely there of what we were going to do later, but there was a lot of, well, shit on there, too. Noise. It's an interesting document, but it's kind of like, <laughs> and it was recorded well, but it's like, the, we were under the influence of a lot of Seattle kind of bands. And you were like mentally different. Yeah, there's a, yeah, definitely I, a pre-medication, post-medication. Yeah, <laughs> Pre-bipolar pre experience. You you were bipolar your whole life and you didn't know it or did it get worse? That's when I... It gets worse. That's when it... No, it, I know, it, my it old man. It like came that. to a head. You get caught when it gets worse. You know? the, the year after that, 1995, was when it when it reared its head. Oh, really? Yeah. To where it was tangible? Where, where I, it was where untenable. He, he got oh, yeah. locked up. <laughs> where I couldn't function, the, basically. They came out with the big Where I was big a danger to myself <laughs> and others. Really? Was it a mania or was it a yeah. depression? It was mania. Oh, you don't get arrested for depression. It's yeah, the mania that's going to get you locked depression. up. <laughs> yeah. The and, mania is what gets you, yeah. And and what uh, what how 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 grand was it? What well, was, I was what committed was the, to a state facility. For what action? What did for, what did you decided I, that made people go? Maybe he needs help. It was a compa. It was a it was a combo. It was combo number five. Yeah. It started out when you drew that little. I was real pencil mustache. I kind of assaulted a 
big security guard kind of person. Oh yeah, in the, in the Mag Mile. Oh yeah, this is in Chicago. Yeah, I was driving around my car, uh, drinking champagne and eating cat food. <laughs> totally you know, jubilant. I don't know why. You didn't have to eat cat food. It was easy. It was convenient. You didn't have and, time to make a and sandwich. And I was at a place where I thought feeding my body, obviously I've gotten over that, that was a nuisance and a distraction that I could no longer deal with. So you had a, so I was you gonna, had a good manic I was system. Gonna, place, yeah, yeah, I was going to consume only what I, I needed to to uh-huh. stay Enough uh-huh. for a small kitten. <laughs> and had and I was drinking that black you know, champagne that comes in the black bottle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. cheap shit yeah, freshenette. Yeah, yeah. They sell it white yeah, in, you yeah, know? Yeah, 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 yeah. What is and that? So I was at Freshenette. And you were, you were building a, more, so a portable the, recording studio in the car. Freshenette. A portable recording studio in the car? In the car, yeah. So you, I think you were not you big plans. Yeah. yeah, I had a lot of big plans. You had a lot of diagrams <laughs> around yeah. the house with electricity enough, and pyramids. Strangely enough, I was listening to Daniel Johnston, too. Yeah, pyramids and electricity. Schematic diagrams? Yeah, he had some things figured out a beautiful <laughs> mind <laughs> i was working on another level some kind of like psychic but, battery it was weird because every now and then i would hit on something that would be yeah pretty dolphins and pillows and various but connections. most of the time it's just gibberish yeah and then you get to this place where you know like you just talking and you guys about, are married just at this time. Yeah, yeah and you're put you're dealing with this yeah yeah, yeah, you know. You thought maybe maybe he does have something. Well, maybe. I mean, the pyramid could be a battery. How am I? I can't argue with that. Remember <laughs> this thing about teepees and reverse cones and vortexes and, and oh, also God. crucifixes were electrical. And crucifixes, so, positive and negatives. Sure, I, you know, I had a yeah. There was some physics involved that wasn't completely crazy. Yeah, yeah, the the yeah, you, he I created was, a personal Kabbalah. On on top of everything, <laughs> I was drinking a lot and sure. doing. Drugs that I were misprescribed. I think you were like prescribed they were antidepressants, me, and that wasn't. They were giving me antidepressants, and I they don't. They don't take that, it was, down. that was just taking me over the. Like, yeah, the it may have been a mistake. But so I was fucked up. <laughs> yeah, were you making any music? That's the thing. I mean, people have this. You don't get a lot of work done in that phase of life. Hey, you, got, I mean, you got diagrams. Since to make. I made That's this, true. Made this public, you always get this thing. Oh, you must have got a lot done when you're. It's, no, you don't get anything done. You don't. And it's this. It's like you mentioned Byron. It's like this whole, you know, fiery genius. Crazy, crazy diva. Who? Yeah. That's a dangerous ideology to it me. Is. My, my advice is. Take your meds. You're right, especially you know. if you're the only one that thinks that. Yeah. Right, because when you're and when you're hot, when you're not full of artists. They're no, full they're full of, of really people. tortured people. Yeah, and it's hard to get work done when you're when your brain is totally disconnected. Do you remember the elation of it? Oh yeah, yeah. And and yeah. so you were in the you were in in, a, in the hospital for a while, two weeks. Yeah, and they got you level. Yeah. Well, he kept saying to me, he seems like he's, you know, pretty rational, but oh, he's talking about bad, yeah. that he's going to tour Europe with his band. I was like, no, that one's actually true. The rest about the, the batteries yeah, and like, the pyramids isn't I've true. I've got to get out of here, Doc. I, I'm, supposed to tour, I'm supposed to go to a tour of Germany. And it was like, he's clearly still delusional. <laughs> <laughs> that was the real part. So, so with, I mean, yeah, it's that's catch-22 situation. So now the, you have a new record coming out? We do, yeah, September 16th. It's going to be in a big, pretty box? Yes, I hope so. Um, yeah, the LPs are on their way. I would have brought you one, but we will Vinyl's send you one. Vinyl's getting hard to do lately. We got uh, transparent green vinyl on the it's way, but everybody's it's doing it. very slow. Those those vinyl factories are and way back up. Yeah, see-through green vinyl. Yeah, I, yeah it's pretty. I like it. I like, yeah, I'll get one. I'll get one. Um, so 
so how many records did it take? So the the first record was post you being properly no, medicated. No, before we had the, two two before two two pre medication records. Yeah, and then after you leveled off, was that when you sort of found the groove that you kind of built on? I think medication without it, we wouldn't have a band. We wouldn't have a marriage. I. Th- you know, yeah. for both of us, I'm on medication too, so it's not just him. I mean, well, that's nice. You, know, you can yeah, have something right. to do together we in the got, morning. We shop for pill cases <laughs> together. <laughs> that's right. You buy pill boxes, yeah. yeah. And you know, I think I it's, but I do think one. it's important to realize that you know, medication can save people's lives. It's, it's. No, absolutely. There's some really amazing drugs out there. Not all of it is necessary, but for us, it's been well, the difference f- between life and death for and sure. And you can function, and yeah. if you don't romanticize the madness, yeah. Well, that's the hardest thing, I think, for the bipolar thing is like they, sure. you like the manic. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> kind of miss it. I'm nostalgic but for But he the got schematic. far enough into it where it wasn't fun anymore. Scary. Well, you were on fire. Still a, you know, it's like the waves are like this. Small waves. The roller coaster wasn't fun them, anymore. Right. Instead of like this. Right, right. I get it. I get it. It's you a know? few I mean, days. I still about, have mood I'm swings. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, you're, and, st- you're always going to be and bipolar. The, essentially, it's about the work, too. I mean, when you make a record, it's not... I mean, and I record every, I, I write the music, I record it, I basically play almost everything. So it's like, this is work. This is not some right. No, you got yeah, nonsense, no, yeah. you know. And you've got fans now, and you've got people that, that enjoy the records. So you got to do the work. It's your job. Yeah. But now, we enjoy doing the work. Of I mean, course. You know, so well, you're that, an artist, so that, you know, I'm not so saying. I that. enjoy being sane is what I'm saying. It's it's not like. A, yeah. yeah. And, and, but then you can at least manage it and you know yeah. your limitations and you right. know the, the con, you know, what you like to work within. So like on this record, the last record, as you said, was sort of a, an animal record. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I and I like I had the songbook like it's weird because I don't know you guys that well. But when like I was very obsessed when I. I couldn't find my handsome family songbook. I was like, that thing's a real thing. I need to, where is it? Where did I put it? Like I have like, cause like there's certain records where I'm like, I, I don't, I, I'll listen to it, but then I'm like, that's a precious item. Is it like the blue, the little the blue, the blue one, yeah. book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where it came from. Was it in the box? I probably, yeah, we probably sent you a bunch or was of things. It yeah. yeah, yeah, and I was like, this is important. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It took forever to do that because it was before like Pro Tools. Oh, really? And, yeah, so I had to use this. It was a mess. It's not, I just feel like our songs, the way we write songs and the way we want our songs to be perceived, I want them to be things that other people can sing, that they sh- they're not about us. They're just about, about songs that should live on, be bigger than us. And, but also, they're, they, they are simple to, to a point, but, yeah. but the, the sound is kind of, the, you do whatever is left from the darkness. There is a haunting quality to the music. And, and not in a bad way, oh. in, in an atmosphere. How could way. haunting be bad? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah. they're not uh, they're not Burl Ives scary, but no, they, we got uh, work to do then. <laughs> no, they are. No, I like classic rock and classic country. But, yeah, those are probably my biggest. We like songs, I think, right? But there know. is a tone that you guys yeah. seem to sure. care. Yeah. Sure, and you're aware of that. Well, awareness. You do what you it's, do. You know, I think that's really all you. It's probably pretty deliberate. So yeah. how wait, how are you working? You record all over at your house, mm-hmm. and, and you have a studio set up. Is uh-huh. it? Are you an analog freak, or what do you do? Um, I get a lot of analog outboard gear, but it all goes in the box. You have to, yeah, right? I don't have. We can time. I can't do tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too expensive. It's too hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate the importance of warming the signal up before you go in. But I mean, in this day, day and age, it's like... It's silly not to, to pretend computers don't exist. <laughs> everything's going to get dithered down. That's Eventually, right. 
to digital anyway. Because that's how everyone I mean, Every, everyone's me, listening on earbuds from right. YouTube. Yeah, on everybody's their phone. going to be listening to to the record on Spotify at like you know, yeah, one hundred twenty eight k right, <laughs> like MP three quality. So right, yeah, to do every to spend that kind of money to do it analog is kind of crazy. Although I appreciate the fetishistic. Yeah, aspect I wouldn't take that, that away from know? somebody if that's their it's thing. It's cool. Well, it's funny because Jack uh, White will make those direct to yeah. acetate yeah. records, we're, but we're, there's always buzzes and fucked up things on them. But that's part that's of what I don't mind it. I don't mind it, yeah. but like you do notice it, and you're sort of like, oh, that's just a live performance. I guess yeah. that buzz is going to be all the way through this record, well, and I, it's kind of cool. Ambience. Yeah. So, what's the new record? Is it is it a a whole piece? Yeah, it's about well, it's it's mostly about colors and is my was my basic theme, but yeah, it's stories about things that aren't easily seen. Things that are just on the edge of visibility. So, like, for instance, the title says. Well, says it all, basically. maybe I don't know if you remember. Have you been to the state fair here when yeah. you were a kid? Did you remember seeing this world's smallest horse, yeah. Tiny Tina? Tiny yeah. Tina. Well, every year I went. It's about her. There's a song about Tiny <laughs> Tina. So, oh. it was seventy-five cents for a few years, a dollar. They went up to a dollar, and I still didn't go. And then one year, I said, "This is the year I'm going to go see Tiny Tina." And then she wasn't there. Oh no! So I, I never saw Tiny Tina. But I was obsessed with human oddities. So when I was a kid, when Ronnie and Donnie were still touring, the, the Siamese twins. Oh, really? <laughs> I saw Ronnie and Donnie. Wow. I saw the world's smallest man there. I That's saw uh, the guy with the um, elephant feet. I saw, like in humanities, they're not easy to come by. It was no. sort of the end of it. This I saw the, the wild woman. That was, a dis- that was sort of a sad moment. Because I, it, <laughs> it was just a, a little woman well, who was in a box. It's a job. Well, that yeah. was it. That was the funny the thing. The box like, is the killer. Like, I, no one was going to see her. They just oh. weren't interested in her. But I went. So I had tickets. Wow. And I walked up the ramp to look in. And she was just you know, like doing some organizing some stuff <laughs> over in the corner. And then she looked, turned around, and she saw oh, me, me. And she kind of went like, all right. Uh, and she picked up a snake. And went, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the show. I appreciate it. But the Ronnie and Donnie, that was trippy, man, because they they would just sit in their trailer. They had a fully furnished trailer, and they were living Siamese twins. And they were just sitting there watching television. And you would just go like, what? And they'd have it fairly visible where they were connected, but they wouldn't look at you or nothing. They'd just sit there and watch TV. And the world's smallest man was like about the size of a slightly large basketball, but he had that weird crippling ailment. I don't know what it was. And he went sit and talk to you. And you'd ask questions. And then the guy with the feet, you know, he had these huge deformed elephantiasis feet. And the, the toes were all mangled and weird. This and was the only job he was going to get then. Right. And he was wearing like a loincloth and he'd walk in and he goes, you can touch him. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no it's five bucks extra <laughs> cool. to touch him. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. And then That's the babies sad. in the jar exhibit, that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. I remember that at uh, White City down by Carlsbad Caverns. Or like the thing. There are places like the that thing. all over. Right, cars. the roadside These attractions. things are disappearing. I mean, I know, I don't right? know they're getting are, cleaned up and people you know, are like, oh, you can't do that. Well, they they, they, they rarely did. took care of them, too, because you go to those roadside museums and a lot of times they're all dusty. And oh, it's nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. all often afraid that my garage is going to start looking like that if I don't yeah. it. Just this weird attraction that used to be relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. So we got uh, the the Tina. So song. yeah, but did you see Tiny Tina? I didn't. I, I did. No, I did say I saw Tiny right. Tina. Yeah. How, compared to the world's smallest man, I mean, would the smallest man be able to ride her? How? What size been, are we talking? Would, it, yeah, he would have, but it would have been awkward because he wasn't like he wasn't like Tom Thumb. He wasn't a dwarf. Or, he didn't have dwarfism. He had something else. So he, but, would, you know, he wasn't a horse rider. But I didn't look like a horse rider. No. 
I regret seeing her, but I don't regret seeing her. You know, that's well, it's about that's like so much <laughs> <Yeah>. in life. <laughs> Diffidence. <laughs> and what's it going to be called? The album? It's called Unseen. Yeah, it's like yeah. about uh, there's some historical stuff about uh, William and... Crooks, who was one of my favorite scientists, who basically designed a vacuum tube in uh, late, 18, late tube, 1800s in Victorian ants. England to try to capture ghosts. Yeah, it was a ghost. That's ghost the, cage. That's the that origin was, yeah. of the vacuum tube. Really? So all guitar the... amps are really he ghost put, trappers. <laughs> he put a filament in, inside a vacuum tube and was trying and moved it around the room, and when yeah. he became excited, he was like, like "Oh, there's a spirit." But what he was really detecting were like ions in the air or other kind of RF. But well, so he wasn't really wrong. No, he wasn't wrong. Not really. No. I but mean, I mean, that turned no. into the tube, which Who's that to, to me is ghosts? A that we all just trick. bought again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're back to I ghosts mean, we're still in the, in the glass. Tubes, the ghosts get a kickback you know? from it, so they're making money on the other side. Well, thank God. Thank God. I knew there had to be a conspiracy <laughs> yeah. to the return to analog. Is that the ghosts needed money? Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. A real treat. That's your doubleheader WTF. All right. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. I'll be in Chicago this Saturday, day after tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Thursday. I think there's still tickets available for the second show. I believe there is. You can go to WTFPod.com slash tour to get a link to those tickets. Um... I'm not going to play guitar today because I got to go do some painting. I'm going to help uh, my buddy paint my uh, bedroom. All right? Okay. Boomer lives! <laughs> 